This is Just Conversations with Kelly Brown Douglas, a series of interviews that explores the racialized inequities intrinsic to our nation and our collective responsibility to create a more just future. This conversation was recorded via Facebook Live on Tuesday, September 7th at 2.15 p.m. On this episode of Just Conversations, Dean Douglas speaks with Bishop Yvette A. Flunder, founder of the City of Refuge United Church of Christ. Dean Douglas and Bishop Flunder will explore the growing public debate around critical race theory and the church's role in creating a more welcoming society for all people. Just Conversations during the fall semester will dive deeper into the essays and themes discussed in our fall community read, The 1619 Project, from the New York Times. So let's jump right in. All right. <laughs> because there's so much to cover yes. in a short period of time. So, Bishop Flunder. Yes. As the... School year in particular begins for colleges, universities, but primary and secondary education. There are various school districts across the country seeking to ban critical race theory from their classrooms, claiming it to be racist with the 1619 Project as an example. Now, we know that many of those who are most vocally opposed don't really know what critical race theory is. Mm How? Would you define critical race theory, especially to a group of white faith leaders who are in opposition and and believe it to be racist? Thank you so very much for the invitation to be here. Uh, Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas, my sister, preacher friend, (laughs) and incredible author. What a joy it is to share this moment with you. I think that... um, To have this conversation sort of as a bread and butter conversation, a critical race theory, would be to say to our constituency, friends, families, folks that we are talking to as students and parishioners, is that there is a huge battle of denial. (laughs) That's the simplest way for me to describe it. Essentially, if we pretend that something didn't happen, in the way in which it did happen, we can begin to teach that we have another reality other than the one that we actually have. I connect this very much, for instance, to what happened in the Greenwood part of Tulsa, Oklahoma, that for many, many years, African-Americans were not even aware that that massacre had occurred. It had been buried so deeply. I was a privy to the sermons that happened in some of the principal churches the morning after that reality. And some of those sermons are still available mm-hmm. where it began a critical race theory reality uh, or the absence of critical race theory reality where the pastors went to the pulpit and began to preach that if the blacks, if the Negroes had, first of all, stayed in their proper place, and not try to essentially imitate and emulate the way of white people's success. If they had just remained Negroes and not built 
all of these businesses and that then this thing would not have happened to them. This violence, if they had stayed in their place, but because they did not stay in their place, something had to be done to remind them that these things, and this is paraphrased, these things are not theirs to have. Never was there an apology. Never was there um, an ownership of the deaths and the destruction that happened that day. It was fed into the listeners to believe had they just remembered their place. There's something very important about this when we talk about critical race theory because we're circling around to it now again, that you can succeed. Stop acting like as people of color, as women, as as immigrants, as any marginalized population, you can succeed if you follow the basic rules and rubric that has been designed for you, which essentially is stay in your place. Don't move out of your place. You'll have opportunities to do lots of things as long as you never really believe (laughs) that you are equal to the dominant concept, the dominant race, the dominant uh, idea and ideals, then you'll be okay. And here's the other piece I'd like to add. The reason that I think religion is so bound up in it, and I have said this to a bunch of people I was talking to not long ago, there is... No Bible scriptures that have to do with slavery that liberates us. I have to say that because the Bible is on the side of the slaveholder to proof text (laughs) and to suggest that this dominant role is the will of God. So people say, I'm not a racist. This This is the way they say it. I'm not a racist. I am a Christian. (laughs) As though those two things have not walked hand in hand and are very aggravated at us talking about 1619 being the jump off for this. Right? And And even the 1619 conversation doesn't go broad enough to talk about the ways in which not only people were made indentured slaves here, and south of us, but what happened where Christianity, with that in mind, dropped in Africa? What happened with Christianity, with that in mind, as it happened to the native populations in California? There's so much that I could say about folks wanting to reframe and redo what really happened, but it was a Bible-based, power-over, manifest destiny, intention, to create strata case systems that were natural and to change that somehow into that you were a thief and a robber and a murderer and a consumer of other people's works and goods is what folks don't want their children to be taught in school. They do not want that to be taught. But there is no healing that can happen where there is no truth. Well, you said it all. You just answered even, you know, the question that emerged for me of, of what faith has to do with critical race theory. And, 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 and what you're suggesting, Juan, is when you talk about stay in your place, what critical race theory uh, 
opens up for us is that 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 is the place created by a white supremacist uh, uh, narrative, structures and systems, and that has been legitimated uh, with use of the Bible and legitimated by a Christian faith tradition. And so that critical race theory helps to open up and help us to understand, right, the role in which race has played with the complicity of religion in legitimating uh, a white supremacist uh, structure, systems, and narratives. So it leads me to, Mm -hmm. to this, that in many respects, what critical race theory makes clear in terms of the significance of race when it comes to adjudicating injustice and creating racial injustice in this nation. We have seen this come to light in these belated indictments that we have seen over the last couple of weeks of the murderers of Auburn Aubrey, of Elijah McClain. Can you speak to that? This is what has gone on outside of the news cycles for years. Yes. This is not unusual at all. Literally, it is not unusual at all. I have watched this happen almost all of my life. And there, there is a double standard without question. There is a high and a low. There is no healing for that high and low until people acknowledge it and work together to, to destroy this, this, you don't, you can't even aspire to have the privileges that I have kind of thinking, right? Mm-hmm. When people go into law enforcement with that in their mind, imagine the gun and the handcuffs in the hands of someone who diminishes a group of people and assumes that any injustice done to them, they are either number one, worthy of that injustice, and powerless to do anything about it. It didn't, it's not, we don't have to go back to Emmett Till. Right. Powerless to do, what can you do? You're powerless to do anything about the system. The sickness of affluenza, that the courts will allow certain people to get away with the very same thing if they are from certain families and if they are of certain lineage. And then to people our prisons with people who did less. And and one people I know people that gotten off because simply because they were affluent. <laughs> and we we knew that was happening. But actually white, you 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 have a roadmap. Exactly. If you if your father and your mother are certain people, you come, you have a certain bloodline. Everybody knows that you're guilty, but but you have affluence. And that affluence opens the door and makes a way. We, we know what that is about. And here's what this is making us reckon with, my sister. What we'll have to reckon with is that there cannot be any reconciliation that does not begin with repentance and mm-hmm. acknowledgement of a wrong done. You cannot make an enemy out of someone that you have abused because you don't want them to declare that you have abused them. You cannot diminish them. You cannot take from them and steal from them and think that that will happen in perpetuity. At some point, the peculiar 
the peculiar realities that we're starting to experience now, where the great-grandsons and the great-great-granddaughters of the slaveholder are rising up to work with the slaves, the, the, the slave descendants and the descendants of the slaveholders working together to find a path to mutuality and freedom. And, and not everybody thought that would ever happen. Now, I, I've been living a long time, sister, and I have been through a lot of freedom marches in my life. I have laid down in coffins for HIV fights. I have been out there as a woman. I've been out there as a same gender loving woman. I have been out there as someone who is fighting for African-American equality and equality for immigrants. But I have never in my life, in all of the marches I've ever been in, seen such a supply of European-American young adults working with young adults of color, not just theoretically, but putting their bodies in harm's way, taking the pepper spray and the rubber bullets, forming a phalanx around Black people so that the Black people won't be harmed. I have lived long enough to see something that I have never, ever seen before in my life. Just the little bits and pieces, but it's magnificent and it speaks to where I believe we can go, but we may have to have another generation to die out <laughs> before well, it actually happens. Well, I, you know, I, I, I like that. It's, it's sort of when I went down in the summer, uh, past last summer, to Black Lives Matter Plaza and saw the yes. diverse configuration of mainly young people out there on the plaza. It's yes. what I call for me like a signal of transcendence yes. of what is possible. You know, yes. that's, that's where you see the hope. Uh, and in the, I remember Bayard Rustin said that the, we see a democracy, we have to enact the democracy that we want to see. Yes. And you saw that sort of out there in the protests on Black Lives Matter Plaza and in what you're speaking of uh, now. But you also mentioned this thing of repentance, which yes. takes me to this conversation that is now a, a, once again a part of uh, the national conversation in this moment of racial reckoning, if you will. And that's this conversation of reparations. And when I think of that from a faith perspective, I do think of repentance. And repentance is not just about apology. It's not about someone being uh, a sergeant of their guilt. It's about turning around, as you know, and doing something different. Now, what we've seen is a focus on sort of the wealth gap, right? Mm -hmm. And the legacy of the wealth gap. You and I are talking about this matter of the legacy of injustice. Yes. And, you know, in light of what's being uh, indictments of Auburn Arby's murder, Elijah McCain's murders, and it's, you know, that, that's a step toward justice. But how, mm -hmm. Bishop Flunder, do we begin to speak to, to repair, to repent for the legacy of injustice for the persons like Trayvon Martin, like mm -hmm. Sandra Bland, like Tatiana mm -hmm. Jefferson, Tamir mm -hmm. Rice, and the list could go on and the countless others who didn't make the news. But we know mm -hmm. that justice 
was not served. Somehow mm-hmm. I want the nation to rise up and say, yeah, we messed up. You mm-hmm. know, those people did murder them. How? But there's a long legacy. What does reparations look like when we're talking not about wealth gaps, but about injustice and its legacy? Such and an important question. My God, that's an important that's an important question. And and I I I think about it about all of the many people before there were cell phones. Yes. And nobody could get recordings and take pictures. How many, many, many people have have been and languished and died in prison for something that someone else knew and someone put them there knowing they were not guilty. Yes. So that someone else could get free. There's no question about this. And so there's a couple of things that come to my mind. And this is what makes it hard. One of my friends told me a story some years ago uh, about a house. He said, imagine that you have a tree and you, you've hewn down your tree and you take your tree and you lay open a, a, the ground where our ancestors did, open the ground and then pad it with tree bark and make a foundation upon which to build a house. And then you build a, a begin the process of building your house. And in the night, and you're a black person, a person of African descent, in the night, a white man comes and takes all of your logs, mm-hmm. takes them over to his property and uses your hewn logs from your land to build a foundation for his house. And so then he builds on this house and you keep coming over and saying, well, now, wait a minute, those are my logs. You took my logs. And he's, Get out of my face. They're, they're my logs. <laughs> Possession is nonsense of the law. They're my logs. And then they continue to build their house on your logs. Well, hopefully when it gets built, perhaps they'll give me a room for my my folks because they built on my logs. You go there and you ask them, well, now are you all finished with your house? Perhaps, perhaps the back room, my family can live. They said, no, you can't live here with my family. We can't dwell together in the same place. But you took my logs. Then you come back the next time they built another bedroom and a second floor. He said, well, certainly there's enough room and space for me now. Because No, you cannot live in here with us. I've got some new children and this is my house and you can't, you come back the next time. And they have tricked it out such that they have a, a family room. And it's like, well, certainly there's enough room. That last time he calls the police hmm. and reports you as a nuisance hmm. and as a thief who is trying to take from him what he built, but he built it on your logs. You see, the problem with the conversation of of not only reparations, but reformation, Mm. the problem with the conversation is people are trying to do this without divesting themselves of anything that is making them comfortable. Right. That's right. The story suggests that the the black person whose logs were there could not live in the house because there couldn't be a mix. And then finally, that the black person is a criminal for even asking to enjoy the fruit of his own labor. That is the time that our country is in. And the struggle is, how can we help help the people come up and not lose anything? And what I keep saying to people, you can't. That's right. And that is the problem. You will have to divest and you will have to share the wealth that you stole, which means you're going to have less. 
That's right. So we, well, we don't want to have less. We don't mind giving you a little something, something. And the other thing is you're not used to having a whole lot. So why in the world <laughs> would you want to have what we have? But the only way to level the playing field is more than 40 acres and a mule. There will have to be some real, genuine, authentic divesting of wealth in order to level the playing field. That is what as well, you know, you y'all can do anything you want to. No, we can't. African American people still do not have the same opportunities. I'm I'm the daughter of a veteran of the Korean conflict who when he came back had it in the bill that he could have a house. Right. But nobody would sell him one. That's right. That's the right. bill did not it did not take away racism. He could not buy in a neighborhood. He had the bill, but he could not buy. What good is it then? So the only places where he could buy was the land where chemicals were leaching up from the ground. That's right. Places nobody else wanted to be by a swamp somewhere. That's, that's That's where we could go. That is not reparations. If we, we must stop, we must determine what we have stolen And we must find, as a country, real, clear, concrete ways to return the wealth that would have happened had people been given the opportunity to have equal access and equal pay. Well said. And, you know, and I like to say, and you're so right of the way in which people have to divest themselves of privilege, which means divesting themselves of the notion that we are living under system, just systems and structures in as much as they grant unjust privilege. Privilege and justice aren't the same thing. And so I often, you know, when you talk about repentance, the turning around and doing yes. something different means that we have to repair the breach between this unjust present and God's just future, right? Which means dismantling these systems and structures of injustice, even as they relate to the quote-unquote justice system and carceral system uh, itself. And people don't want to give give that up. Mm -hmm. Uh, So our our conversation, our time is fleeting. So I want to get to at least a couple more uh, uh, quick questions. We could hear you all day, and I invite people to please follow uh, Bishop Flunder and the mess and the ministry uh, that indeed uh, is hers and that she conducts it is expansive. Let me ask this: We're a seminary, and even yeah. as you speak on these things, we are educating future faith and religious leaders. What are the ways that you think we should we could better prepare our students for facing the challenges in the work of? Justice. Yes. Telling the truth. Mm. It starts there. And because we are theologians and and budding theologians, right? Right. We have to begin with the truth that is in the text. We have to be able to call the evil out of the Bible. Name it and speak to it. And stop trying to justify it. We are, we are Christian people who have been taught out of a text 
that begins by telling us one race of people is superior over others. Mm-hmm. One is, is the, the love of God, the one that God loves. Everybody else has been grafted in. Everybody else is a B part or a C part, but not an A part. And I believe that it begins there in the seminaries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If we are going to really send out, raise up, dispatch justice warriors, which is what the world needs now, who believe in the divine, it's going to be extremely important to understand the underpinning of what we are doing is a story of racism. Yeah. And we're going to have to be able to speak to that. I think that that is where we got to go back to the house and lay a new foundation and then build from that place. No, I like that. To tell the truth about what's yes. there, about what's not there, and tell the truth even when the truth hurts, if we're going yes. to ever get to a yes. better place. So I'm going to cheat a little bit. I said I had yes. just two more questions. I got I to gotta sneak mm-hmm. in one question because you are a prophetic justice warrior. And you do that through your writing, through your teaching, through your preaching, and through the gift of your voice and your music. You are an award-winning gospel musician. And we know historically the 1619 Project uh, touches upon it, the role that Black music has played in the struggle for Black freedom and for a more racially just society. Bishop Flanders, what do you believe the role of music, do you believe it has a, a, a role? And, and if so, what is that role? What's the importance of, of, of music today in the Black community for the struggle? Mm-hmm. Our truth as people of African descent is that our music always told how we were doing mm-hmm. and what was on the front burner for us. So if we were singing uh, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. You know, if when we were singing slave songs and chain gang songs, we sang our sorrow and we sang our hope. We started there. What people call Negro spirituals were our communication songs. We had songs about heaven. A lot of songs about heaven. Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. We had those kinds, but we had those, I got shoes, you got shoes. All of God's cheering, got shoes, because it seemed so bleak that we would have it here. But when I get to heaven, I'm going to put on my shoes. Those are songs of hope for a time when justice would come. And if you follow us and follow us over the years, you begin to hear our Hue and cry, our pain and suffering, and our hope. There are songs out there right now that are speaking what we are expecting in this time and hoping for the future that are very different from what our grandparents sang. But our grandparents' songs are the soil out of which we found strength. Every civil rights march had a song. Yeah, that's true. Every movement had a song. Every church had a theme song. All of us had a song. Even when we prayed, we prayed in cadence, (laughs) in rhythm, right? We danced and sang because that was the way in which our issues 
took wings and went up to God. Mm. That was the way we believed that you, you know, you forget sermons. Yeah. But we're filled with songs, filled with them, right? Because that was our language. That was the way that we got through. Well, right now, there's some powerful music out there. These young folks are singing some powerful stuff and speaking truth to power in the music. And it and speaking back and taking back yeah. power in the music. And we shall overcome, which will never die as a song for us. It will never die because it speaks to what is our ultimate intention. Hmm. That we show up. So there's extreme power in music. And I would say one other thing. There are a lot of folks that say that black people have arrived <laughs> because the, they, we have music people who make money or we have athletes that make money. They say, well, well, we don't need to do anything else for you all. You don't need any more logs. You know, <laughs> you make money. You make money. And it's a disproportionate reality, however. It doesn't spread across all of us. Right. And although I've heard a lot of great music from some high-level music artists, I need people not to forget that the music that is in our souls is often not what is published out there in the world. I encourage us to go back and get some of those grandma songs and, and big mama songs and aunties and Uncle Bubba songs <laughs> and bring those songs those songs. Let's go back and get the juke joint and the, and the you know what I mean. Go back and get those songs because those are the songs of struggle. And let's see if we can reinterpret them in the understandings that we have over time. This is the language of people of African descent. I I love the language of people of African descent and the soul language. Yes. Right. Yes. And it seems to me in just listening to what you were saying, and I promise I'm gonna get that. Especially that music is also a way, has it been a way, and, and even for you to help lead across the differences? Because Lord knows you have had to uh, deal with people with different values, different understandings of the gods, mm -hmm. different views even of humanity. And yet you found a way to lead across the differences over all these years, Mr. Flunders. And, and mm -hmm. has music helped you to do that? And how have you led across these vast differences? Music is the great equalizer. Yeah. And I have said that many times. Yep. You yep. sit right next to someone who believes that you're going to go to hell. <laughs> and the music, if the music is right, you can end up rejoicing together. It's the most amazing thing. Hmm. And I have said it this way. Most of my secular artist friends that I've known down through the years and the Diana Rosses and the Aretha Franklins and, the, you know, I could go on and on and on. At the end of their their shows, they would often sing a spiritual of some sort, or they'd weave it in somewhere, because we all have that same background. And a lot of my church music folks, who are church music artists, they don't sing secular songs in public, but the secular artists will sing spiritual songs in public and make that connection. Because the, 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 it's that's like church says, you can't blend those two things together. But I believe that we're at our strongest and our greatest when we do add the blues to gospel, because they have the same root, different words, same root, right? And I'm I'm am married to the the voice of Oh Happy Day, yeah, fifty plus years ago, which became an international song. Nobody thought, Shirley certainly didn't think 
but nobody thought it would turn in, but because people needed in the wartime, especially the Vietnam wartime, a message of hope. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. When I get to heaven or when I create heaven on earth, I'm going to sing and shout, right? And it was a song, a messaging song that set people free. So I still believe that the message of struggle, when it is elevated uh, to song, it takes wings. Mm. And it becomes, you know, we shall overcome. And we mean it. We mean it. And, it. and it moves us through. It heals us as we go. There's a bomb in music, like songs like a bomb in Gilead. It, there's a bomb in music that heals the soul. So I'm going to get you out on this. You said, oh, happy day. Yes. And yes, indeed. Your wife sung that song yes. and gave you that gift of that song. When you think of the old happy day in terms of a just future, mm-hmm. in your moral imagination, mm-hmm. what does that day that would be a just future look like? For me, it goes, it goes backward and forward. It must go backward to your original question until we repent of the sin per- perpetrated on the people that were on this land and people that were brought to this land essentially as slaves and indentured servants. We must go back and then we have to go forward from the truth. We have mm-hmm. to go back Embrace the truth and go forward from the truth. And there is something that is going to happen in time. And I have said this over and over again. My baby grandson is 11 years old. And by the time my baby grandson is a grandfather, or maybe a father, if that is what happens in his future, most of the children being born will be cafe au lait, as I say sometimes, in color. Because of the mixing of race. It's like European people became white. They they didn't come here white. They came here English, French, you know, you know, Scottish, Italian. And then the 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 Negroes of the white race, the Irish, you know. (laughs) You know, but it is important for me to say that they became something. They they got together and made a whole new thing, white, right? There's cafe au lait is coming. (laughs) <laughs> because the mixture of the race, I look around now, I see a lot of babies, I know they're mixed race, and I can't even figure out exactly what got with what that made them. But I know that that's where we're headed. We won't have this dichotomy of us and them that now as human beings, we'll probably find another reason, maybe green eyes and blue eyes or brown eyes and hazel eyes or something, something that makes someone more superior than the other. But my hope is that if we can go far enough back to learn the lessons and to make the reparations that we need to make, then we can slingshot forward. This, I used to play, uh, just one last thing I want to leave with you. When I was in college, the first uh, place I went to college, I, I got involved in physical ed in, in that uh, setting. And I didn't want to take my clothes off and put on stuff to, to do physical ed. So I chose archery. Now, I'm 5'2". I'm 
And the bow is taller than me, a full-size bow. You know what I mean? But I said, you know, this can't be hard. I can do this. I don't have to change clothes. I can just do this. So I seated the, the, the arrow in the, in the bow and pulled it back and let it go. And it fell down right in front of me. I said, I'm missing something here. You know, because the concept is I'm supposed to do this and then it's supposed to hit a bullseye. And I learned something. And that was the ability and the power of the flight to my target was directly in proportion to how far back I was willing to pull. And so I would say these two things, if we are willing to pull back and, and embrace and repent for the dastardly way that this nation began, then we together can fly straight and true into our future. And when our beautiful Cafe Ole babies are all around us and nobody really knows what is the dominant race that is in there, they know that they can claim the good in all things and they can repent for the evil in all things. Then perhaps, my sister, we will have reached a place where we will see humanity as humanity. Mm. And we will not have to have this dominant power over dynamic that is encouraged and supported often by religion and faith. We can put that to bed. We can put that to rest. And we can bring heaven to earth. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is my prayer. And what a last word. And imagine Bishop Hunter, if we could pull back to the time when God breathed a sacred breath in every single body that has breath and slingshot forward to respect them as the sacred creatures that they are, regardless. Hallelujah. As you would say, you will get even this Episcopalian to say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, (laughs) my sister. Reverend Dr. Yvette Flunder, for your ministry, your work, your prophetic word, your gifts, and for taking the time to be a part of this conversation. And I want to thank all of you who have joined us and let you know that I will continue to host our Just Conversation throughout the fall semester with a focus on the essays and themes that can be found in this semester's Community Read, the 1619 Project. So be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter to see those dates. And save the date for Dr. Khalil Gibran Muhammad, the author of the 1619 Project's essay on the barbaric history of sugar production in this country. Join us at EDS at Union on the evening of October 7th, 2021. And you can register for that as well online. And finally, to our Jewish siblings, I want to wish you a happy new year to all those who celebrate Rosh Hashanah. Thank you for joining us and praise Lord for you, Bishop Yvette Flunder. Thank you. Thank you, Angel. Take good care. You too. Thank you for listening to Just Conversations with Kelly Brown Douglas. These 30-minute conversations are featured on the EDS at Union Facebook page. Videos are also available on the Union YouTube page. The audio edition 
can be found wherever you stream podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and share.